Welcome to episode 58 of the podcast. And my God, I hope I got the number right. Wait, no, wait a minute. With your math. I think this is homebrew history. It is homebrew history. Oh. It is also the Civil War Breakfast Club oh, podcast. Mary, look the door open again. Look who's here. Yeah, look what the cat dragged in. <laughs> you know, literally. literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, for well, the, for those who know, uh, sometimes my cat likes to you know voice his own opinions, and uh, usually they're not very good ones. Uh, but you know what? It's great to see you all. Uh, so welcome to our uh, our little collaboration. Yeah, so we've got the Homebrew History Podcast and the Civil War Breakfast Club Podcast teamed up together for a very special recording and a very special mission at the end. Uh, So we're bringing these two podcasts together for the greater good. Oh my goodness, there's people out there that are going to be uh, the beneficiary of this disaster tonight. (laughs) Who knows? Wow. So, Darren and Mary, welcome to Homebrew History. Uh, thank you all so much for being able to join thank us today. Thank you, and Joe and Bo, welcome to Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. That's great to all be here. Kumbaya. Kumbaya. Look at the city around the campfire, having a couple of beers, talking history, going to raise some money, having a good time. You know, it's, uh, yeah, so it's definitely, definitely fun. Definitely time to have this crossover type episode. This is a lot, first we've ever done this. This is exciting for us. I think we've done we've done one other one with our our friends over from Finding on Film, but this is uh, I think this is certainly a new a new idea I guess uh, bringing all the collaboration or the collaborative effort of both podcasts both audiences together uh, to see what we can accomplish for um, our little fundraiser at the end. But I think what might be really cool is first to kind of talk about how both of our shows got started, kind of. Uh, what's going to happen is that listeners of Civil War Breakfast Club that have never heard of Homebrew History are going to hear us for the very first time. Likewise, listeners of Homebrew History will hear about the Breakfast Club, possibly for the very first time. And so we kind of just want to maybe introduce ourselves. Okay. Well, Darren and I started this podcast, what was it, August of 2020? Yep. It only seems like 80 years ago, but it's amazingly (laughs) just one year. August 2020, we started. We we decided to take our... uh, Civil War beer conversations and start recording them and putting them on a podcast. So it was um, oh, almost a little more than a year ago. Yep. And, and y'all talk about just about everything under the sun. Is that right? Yeah, we do. We cover um, Eastern theater, Western theater. You know, we do some off the wall topics like we've done uh, drinking and the Civil War, where we talked about the history of alcohol um, in regards to the Civil War. But then we each pick some generals that we would drink with. Um, without knowing the, the full history behind some of them, only to discover that some of those generals we had picked did not drink. Um, well, made it really well, interesting. We've always had, like, you know, like you in a place like Gettysburg or places like Franklin, you know, sometimes the best conversations you have about history are sitting in a bar, just running some random dude and talking history. And those are the best conversations I've ever had about history. Um, and so that's kind of what our podcast is. Just imagine just sitting around, no opinions really wrong. No, you know, we just, it's not one of those type things where, um, we always had to demand that everything's tight and factual. We, we try to talk about whatever pops in our minds and try to have it be entertaining and educational. So, um, that's always been kind of the, um, the MO of this podcast. Certainly. Yep. And we enjoy playing the what if game which we've done in a few episodes. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's certainly something that we enjoy doing on here. And 
you know, from the podcast, it's grown into having um, a roundtable once a month via Zoom. We do Facebook Lives every Saturday at 10. Um, we have a book club as well um, and a forum on our website. And really, it's grown out of just like, you know, how supportive people have been. And the one thing we, the other thing we like to do with this podcast is just make these people, these soldiers, human, that they're not just dots on a map and, you know, just thinking war things all the time. You know, they're, they're humans. And that's what we love to do with this. Yeah. A dedicated listener over here uh, joined you for the Facebook Lives and stuff. I've I've listened since the first maybe four or five episodes and then went back, binged all of those, got through. Actually, we we uh, I had everybody listening to the Shiloh episodes oh. before we went on the trip. And they all said the same thing that you guys said in the, in the second episode. What was that rattling? Oh, it was so bad. And so we, we got through the second episode, and it was just a blast. And then we actually listened to the end of the second episode while we were driving through the park. So oh, cool. That's what I've, I've loved listening to y'all's episodes while I'm doing Battlefield stuff. Nice. Because it's like you're listening to it, and then all of a sudden you're seeing it at the same time. Y'all's tour through Chickamauga was awesome because i was following where y'all were saying the next part of the action the next brawl in the bar room was <laughs> right down this street so you know, hook a right and get down to dyer's field well thank you we Absolutely. appreciate your support too and seeing you pop on our facebook lives and our round tables too especially last week for trivia we do trivia nights every so often too yeah the trivia was so much fun um but I'll tell you what, there's nobody that's going to beat Curtis any time in the near future. It <laughs> no, seems no. like he is the winner he is, he is, forever. He's the Civil War Rain Man of this stuff. <laughs> we, we, even, we even congratulated him on the podcast for winning before the actual contest. That's how we were. And it actually worked itself out because he it did. did win. So, there you go. So, Bo, what about homebrew history? How did we get started? Because, you know, the origin story is... is contrived and misconstrued but i know it starts at the yalta conference conference with uh dr uh dr rob satino and just kind of grew from there but what did we decide to just sit down and do it i i don't yeah we tell the story and i forget it every time <laughs> yeah you know it, it does start at the 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 yalta conference uh J joey and i had uh you know he and i had gone through the master's uh program at our, our respective university together and uh we actually got this opportunity to, you know, go to this, um, you know, very, I thought it was awesome, uh, little sort of roundtable discussion about the, the importance of the, the Alta Conference. And Joey and I had been talking about this for some time, um, wanting to do some kind of... It was a cooking show. It was. Originally. It was an Italian Cajun YouTube cooking channel. Um, and somehow, yeah, somehow or another, Joey and I got to drinking one day and said, you know what? We're not going to do this whole cooking show because God knows we'd probably set the place on fire. So let's not do that. Let's set people's brains afire. Let's do a history podcast. Um, and thus, homebrew history was born, so it seems. Wow. We started in uh, in May of 2020, and uh, we've just passed, passed up our 30,000th download, and we are... Uh, 14, I think 14 different countries or 18 different countries, uh, global listenership. It's really, it's been great to be able to connect with people yep. from around the world. And, you know, we don't restrict ourselves to just the Civil War, or just World War II, or just the Cold War. Like, we kind of have branched out into some other stuff. We did, I think, still my favorite episode, and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a foodie, was our history of barbecue. I thought that that was maybe the best episode we had done because I... 
not only am I a barbecuer, but I just I loved learning about some of like the uh, uh, the South American origins as well as the African origins of the food that we eat today. And Joey's actually a sixty five year old man. Um, he's interested in the Second World War and barbecued meats, uh, which are yeah. I managed to do both <laughs> categories at twenty five. Wow. That's like every old guy I know, by the way. Yeah, exactly. The barbecue yeah. World War II. Like yeah. yeah. You know, throwing complaining about the government and watching college football, and you got the whole, you got the, the entire thing right there. Well, you know? fortunately, I don't. I can't check off the college football because my college football team is trash, so yeah, well. I'll never get a chance to, <laughs> to do that. That's yeah, okay. Go Vols. Uh, hey, Tennessee Volunteers, you guys had your day, you know. <laughs> 20 years ago <laughs> that's a hey, very my, that's my, a very my, cool my, origin story we definitely relate to the whole like we got to having some drinks one day you know uh, that's how the best ideas are born right it's true i've written some of the best papers in graduate school just you know a fifth of whiskey already in you know um you yep. know and honestly you know i i i couldn't tell if they made sense but apparently they did because i mean they gave me the degree but you know hey who knows? So you find that, that, can, that perfect blend of you have just enough alcohol. It makes you feel like work, golf, whatever it is. You hit that yeah. one spot and you stay there and you got it. You That's got right. it. You know, and I, in growing, growing up here in Boston, I can tell you all the memoirs of Samuel Adams and Ben Franklin. They stayed right there when they did everything. So it was perfect. <laughs> perfect. So, anyway. So, yeah. So, um, so what are we doing tonight, boys and girl? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, what we're do- we're talking about battlefield reclamation, and uh, I think one thing that we always do on our show, and you guys do it on your yep. show, is we talk about what we're drinking tonight. Yep. And um, we have a little segment. It's called "What's in Your Cup." You've got a segment that talks about the cup that you're drinking yep. from. So let's go ahead and Bo. I'll ask Civil War Breakfast Club podcast and Bo Trisler, what is in your cup? Uh, I guess I'll start us off. Um, I am drinking, um, right now, I'm drinking Hazy State IPA by Collective Arts Brewing, which is probably my favorite brewery here in Canada. I call it the Treehouse of Canada, which is, Darren will tell you, is the best beer from New England, which I've never have had before, but the way he raves about it, I feel like I have, and I feel like it's probably just as good as what Collective Arts is, and I'm drinking it out of my Civil War Breakfast Club mug, because... Decided to bring the merch with me. Got to bring the brand with me tonight. Bring so. the brand. Definitely. That's... Well, um, for me, using the company mug as well because she copies <laughs> me. And I'm drinking, uh, speaking of, drinking, <laughs> it's called Number Nine by Treehouse. Like Church mentioned, it's the best beer in the world. We proudly don't ship this anywhere outside of just the breweries in Massachusetts. So it's fantastic stuff. So it's very, really good. Definitely not going to send it to Canada. No way. Forget that. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> well, I uh, I actually left my drink outside of my recording room, and I'm kind of mad at myself. Uh, but uh, I was I was drinking Tennessee Honey uh, right off the rocks. It's been that kind of day. Um, it's you know I, it's you know it, to, to to keep a long story short, it's a Tennessee Honey kind of day. I got a full bottle of that in my cupboard over here, Bo, just in case you're curious. Yes. As 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 Joey knows, it's uh, my number one uh-oh juice, so, um, you know, he knows. It is. That's my case, case of a bad work day or nuclear attack. That's my, that's my go-to drink, too, so it's, it's, all, I'm all, it's always ready for it. It's always there. 
Uh, I've got little, uh, well, yeah, I've got little Harpeth's um, Chicken Scratch. It's a Pilsner. It's delicious. And I am drinking it from my Damn the Very Torpedoes nice. uh, Fort Gaines mug, which is a, uh, who's no, who knows if he ever actually said Damn the Torpedoes full speed ahead, yep. but it, it's, it's a nice thing to imagine. Episodes. And I get to say it every time I drink yeah. the cup. <laughs> so what what have we got on the agenda for tonight? We're going to talk about battlefield preservation, right? We're going to talk about maybe looking at specifically on our side with some of the Civil War battlefields, how the whole thing got started with preservation. And then we talk about specifically about a couple of the big boys like Gettysburg, um, Chickamauga, places like that. And just talk about some of the challenges they have, both plus and minus, about the, this, this never-ending uh, saga of trying to save these battlefields. And we are definitely going to be discussing also, we are going to end off with a place that is very near and dear to all of our hearts, especially Joe's, uh, Battle of Franklin and Battle of Franklin Trust is what we're going to end off with tonight. So yeah, so the hist- like battlefield preservation is not a new thing at all. It actually, you know, we know places like American Battlefield Trust now, we know Civil War Trails, Battle of Franklin Trust. And I think it seems a little bit more well-known, especially with the advent of social media and the ability to do Facebook Lives, um, you know, what Battle of Franklin Trust does, as well as what American Battlefields does. Civil War Trails has a great social media account. Um, But it actually goes back to even in the years, like, right after the Civil War, but you don't really see it too much until the 1890s, once things had cooled off a little bit, um, is when you really start to hear about it. and that's when, you know, U.S. Congress authorizes the creation of Chickamauga as a battlefield. Um, and that opens in 1895. And it kind of set the sta- standard for Shiloh, Vicksburg, and Gettysburg, all of which opened in that year as well. And they were all established and based on um, Chickamauga. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, walking into the Chickamauga Visitor Center with a Gettysburg hoodie on, they made it very well known that they sent cannons to Gettysburg when it was a, when they started establishing it as a park as well, which kind of made me laugh that there's this little rivalry going on um, between. And of course, it's East versus, versus Western theater, right? Um, so you have these, and it was kind of like a grassroots effort, you know, like you have Sickles at Gettysburg establishing it there. You have um, Henry Boynton and Ferdinand Van Derveer um, being the reins behind getting Chickamauga going. Um, you even have land being purchased by soldiers. For instance, Cheatham Hill at Kennesaw Mountain is purchased by soldiers um, in an Illinois mm-hmm. regiment. Um, and it wasn't until the 1930s that Kennesaw was actually bought and t- started to be turned into an actual battlefield. But that's kind of the first phase of this is in the 1890s is when it begins. Mm-hmm. Well, it, goes, it actually goes before that a little bit, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they talk I mean, the Ken Burns series, if you, you know, which kind of really spur a lot of this talk about how the civil was fought in 10,000 places, you know, who knows how true that is, but it's hyperbole, but those battlefields are kind of all over the place. And, and as soon as the battle, as soon as the war ended, you had that preservation process really start. Now, some of it was just from local soldiers who were still alive before the, you know, they trying to raise their own money. Um, you know, there was those three, there was three monuments placed at, at the at Manassas, almost immediately um this is before 1890 there's still two left actually um 
you know, the, you had the establishment of those national cemeteries that were started, Gettysburg, for example, Balls Bluff, places like that. Mm-hmm. So or because of the cemeteries, you kind of had a natural preservation around them, which kind of started cemetery out, right? Uh, Cold Harbor, you know, uh, Balls Bluff at Leesburg, places like that. Um, really, Gettysburg really got the whole thing mm-hmm. kind of really going, though. But, you know, these places are slowly disappearing because you've got that constant tug and pull of, commercialism especially in the east um versus history and if you go i mean the, the battlefields are disappearing you know faster than you know beer mary's fridge on a friday night to be honest they they they're, they're just they're going so <laughs> so there are these different these different aspects to keep them now you know mary mentioned the 1890s you know you have that the north and south reconciliation starting right and some of the vets are still alive too they're mm-hmm. still there's some of these, these old coots are still kicking and you kind of have Congress at this point trying to kick in some money. Um, most land hadn't most land hadn't been gobbled up yet. It was starting to, but it really hadn't. And you have the establishment in the 1890s, those five major national battlefields that kind of happened. So you got, you got Shiloh, right? Chickamauga, Chattanooga, Vicksburg, and Antietam and Gettysburg. So you have those that were really kind of the first real genesis of it. Ironically, not one is in Virginia which is where most of the battles were fought. So it's kind of funny how, how that plays itself out. And that generation kind of led for a while until kind of things kind of slowed down again. Jump ahead to the 1920s, that era, that era, um, you got very few vets left now. Um, and, but there's a new, there's a new energy of preservation kind of starts again. Um, and this is because that urban development's really pushing now. So now people are getting a little, they're starting to realize that these battlefields are starting to go away. It was around now when Virginia got the memo when, when they smelled the coffee with this, because it was around here that Petersburg, Appomattox, Fredericksburg, <laughs> Richmond, and then Manassas kind of all started from that 20s to the 40s period. And that kind of continued along for a while, but then World War II happened, right? And slowed everything down and um, and things kind of slowed down. As a matter of fact, I mean, speaking, speaking to Gettysburg, for example, those monuments that were built almost got destroyed in World War II because they needed the metal. That was those those monuments are actually on the chopping block, the Meade statue. That if things didn't go well, they were all getting melted down for the metal. You know, so that kind of goes on and on and on. The thing that and, and I of course I'm, we're recording this episode, and I had just I've just come back from Shiloh the day before, and what had always sort of amazed me is the way that Shiloh sort of grew, you mentioned it kind of starting with the cemetery and then beginning to expand out. And, you know, you still don't have the entire battlefield there preserved by the NPS, but you've got, I mean, such a massive portion of it. You can tell so many of the stories. And that's sort of the gift of both of our shows is that we get into those stories and we sort of talk about what's happening on that battlefield. And just using uh, Shiloh as sort of the example, you, you roll through that April 6th and 7th and, you know, you can use the Purdy Road as your guide. You know, you, you drive down all the way back to the very entrance of the park and start day one, drive all the way back to the back of the park, get to the visitor center, then turn around and go back down. And you end up, will follow day two on April the 7th. And you can follow that layer of progression. And I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, and, you know, I, I do it every day, so I guess I could imagine, is being able to interpret a battlefield in the middle of a neighborhood because... You couldn't do that at Shiloh. I mean, first off, the terrain wouldn't allow it. But 
Second, there's no way to tap into, you know, where this regiment is, who's in this regiment, who's in this brigade, what's happening here. You know, I stood yesterday uh, on the hill that Claiborne had to defend, mm -hmm. that Patrick Claiborne had to defend on the second day. And not only having listened to Yarl's episodes, but read so many great books, um, the Shiloh book by Timothy Smith, Oliver, uh, uh, the Cunningham book as well. Yep. There's some serious book enabling right there. Um, you can't put that in your mind if you're not looking at that hill and you're not looking at that ground. You're watching the way that it, it rolls, it, it undulates, Jeez. if you will. And uh, the tree growth and like, that's what we kept trying to stress to some of the other people in the in the car with us was look at this this is what they went through the look at the open timber look at the overgrowth this is what happened you can't do that as easily at no. same mary's heights it, no you can't describe if you're the same way. if you're why if you're trying to describe iverson's brigade at gettysburg walking across at oak hill when the soldiers in the union from the 12th mass said it looked like the ground swallowed them up Right. And they appear and it wouldn't make any sense until you walk yeah. and realize it's got a little dip in the middle that would be filled in now. So same thing with some of these other yeah. battlefields. And, and if you don't have the ability to walk the actual ground, you really miss out on so much. Because a lot of it doesn't make any sense. You go, well, mm -hmm. why did this happen the way it did? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because you couldn't you, it couldn't be seen. Exactly. You know, look, at you know, you look at the Battle of Vicksburg and how. Yeah. You know how they they couldn't make it across some of the abbeys and stuff like that. Well, it's because they couldn't be seen, and and so that's why it's important. And it's a it's a real shame what happened to Mary's Heights. It really, really is, mm -hmm. um, because if you go there, um, yeah, you can imagine it. But it's it, it's like it's like looking at a picture in a museum, saying, "Well, that's the way it must have been like." And places like Gettysburg, for example, or Antietam or yeah. Manassas, and places that are really preserved for the most part, especially places like Antietam. It makes so much sense. You can walk. You can walk in the West Woods. You can walk in the cornfields. You can see what the soldiers saw, mm -hmm. um, and that's why this preservation is important. Because for many of these fields, especially in places like Virginia, um, you know, Chantilly comes to mind. It's like you're walking in someone's backyard. That's what it's been reduced to. Well, you can describe it as a postage yeah. stamp, and you know, the example yeah. from the Western Theater I can think of it is Ezra Church. It's in the middle of Atlanta. You don't know. Like, yep. you can't get an idea of what happened there. And, you know, the research I did for that episode, of course, I was reading Howard's memoirs. Our listeners know he's my favorite general. Shocker! <laughs> is, that, is that the number one? Is that the first reference for Oliver first Howard? Yeah, oh, so everybody take a drink. All right. you, but um, you have to say, well, hallowed be thy name after you yeah, say Howard, though. That's hallowed the problem. Be thy name. <laughs> but, you know, you, you read his memoirs, and he explains in those memoirs that the reason why he was putting his troops the way he, he did was because the terrain reminded him of Chancellorsville and what happened to him with Stonewall Jackson. You go there now, there's no way mm -hmm. to see that at all because it's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. how, that's how Nashville, Nashville has always felt for me is you go to Nashville and obviously it was going to get built upon. It's a large metropolitan city, even in 1864, but I don't know, a little part of your heart breaks when you're trying to follow the battle line. It's like, Oh, Walthall's Redoubt or uh, Loring's Redoubt is the neighborhood, and there's just a giant. I mean, the street sign is Loring's Loring Court, and that's it. That's that's how you know you're on the battlefield as you start to see the street names change. And there's no way to put in your mind. It's hard to orient yourself. You know, which way am I facing? Which way is the line? How it, 
there's no way to do it when there's all this development right on top of it. And I think that's, there will never be a way that we would be able to reclaim everything and set it all the way back. But there's a way, I think, to engage the public in reclamation efforts. And there's an economic yeah. impact to it as well. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, this is not a simple, you know, black and white topic. There's so many different angles that you've got to, you know, I mean, like you said, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, economically impacting, you know, the, the modern local, you know, locals, you know. Um, but, but that's something, too, that I, I think is sort of, you know, um, maybe not so much talked about is really getting the public, you know, involved. You know, not, I mean, of course, you know, we as historians, you know, there's nothing more we'd love more than to, you know, have every single battlefield, you know, reclaimed. And, you know, and, and sort of put in a neat little box because, you know, historians love their neat little boxes. Um, you know, but it's we, we, historians have to have help from the public. No, and I think, you know, when you talk about the public, you had that really that fourth era of preservation for these Civil War fields that really started in the late 80s, early 90s, 1990s with that Ken Burns series, right, that came out. It coincided with the release of the movie Gettysburg. And so you kind of did have that public kind of awareness all of a sudden where people watch and say wait a second that's right down the street from yeah. me you know people were maybe realizing what mm -hmm. these statues finally meant you saw the establishment of like this the civil war trust for example now the american battlefield trust um battle of franklin trust the one we're going to talk about later and these are groups that kind of came out with because they did have public support to help defeat that urban development right and, and try to acquire some battlefield ground that was, for, you know, for purposes of preserving them for pros, you know, prosperity, and that's that's really what um what the challenge is. But I think starting in that '90s, and that's where the Civil War people really owe a lot to Burns with this. It really spurred reenactments again. It kind of regenerated a lot of that enthusiasm, that excitement again towards that four-year period in the 1800s, where until then it was just four years you know, in a book, and that was the end of it. He kind of brought that to life again and realized that the Civil War wasn't that long ago. And so he kind of it was a shot in the arm. So, mm -hmm. you know, American Battlefield Trust, um, you know, they, they formed in 1987 right around that point. And then they preserved, I think they preserve grounds, about 24 states now. And, um, you know, I, I think about 53,000 acres since, you know, since since they started. And so I think the, the, the momentum is there for the most part. I just think... Um, I think that's the secret is to keep the momentum going and maybe spreading it from the east, heading it more towards west, where it's still kind of focused. Yeah, and I think too the other thing as well is the story of how some of these battlefields came to be is just as interesting as you know going to the battlefields themselves. And I know, you know, Darren, you want to talk a little bit about Dan Sickles and his role because he, you know, he everybody gives him a lot of shit for Gettysburg. But I mean, Get he's why Gettysburg's there, you know. Get Gettysburg, I mean, I mean, that seems to be the the hub, whether you like it or not. That seems to be the the, the gateway drug of the Civil War for a lot of folks is Gettysburg, for, especially if you're in the East, because it's easy to get to. You know, preservation really started there, really, really early, before the war even ended. Um, that Gettysburg uh, Battlefield Memorial Association kind of got started, and they were trying to raise money um, to purchase significant areas of the battlefield almost immediately. You started to see monuments popping up there as early as 1878, right in that ballpark. Um, and by 1893, 1895, you had the National Military Park established. Um, 
And but they always had that battle between memorialization and commercialization. Now, Gettysburg is interesting, though, because people always imagine, think of Gettysburg as a sleepy little village in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. It's really not. I mean, it's the, it's the county seat of Adams County. It's got two, and this is at the time of the, of the battle, it had two major universities, seven churches. Um, it had a national bank that prints over four million bucks in its own currency in about a 70 year period. So, four to 500 buildings dotted the town. It was a big town for that period. So, it was. It was one that was fighting commercialization really from day one because it was already there. Now, this is where Dan Sickles comes in. You know, Dan Sickles famously got his third core wrecked that day, the second day of Battle of Gettysburg at the Peach Orchard. Um, although he will tell you that he did not. He will absolutely defend that to the death, you know. Um, and you can debate whether he was successful at Gettysburg all day. Uh, but you can't debate how well he did preserving that battlefield. That, that's just a fact. So in the 1870s, you know, veterans of the battle are trying to raise money. And he, Sickles is in New York City. And apparently he was appalled that he saw veterans from New York trying to raise money to build monuments at Gettysburg. And many of these people were poor themselves, could barely feed themselves or their families. And they're trying to raise money to build monuments for their regiments. So Sickles decided to become very, very active in this field. And he becomes chairman of the New York State Legislation, uh, Legislature's um, Commission of the Monuments of Gettysburg. So he's going to put a lot of politics behind it. He, he oversaw the placements of all those New York monuments, the 44th, just 86, pick one. That he, he was behind all of them. He also, and this is interesting too, is he also provided the map of the battle that lasted for a while too. So what he said was kind of the way it worked. Right up until like 1974, 75, people used his map as the map of the Battle of Gettysburg, which wasn't always correct. But um, you had a guy in Gettysburg named William Tipton who ran an electric cable car company. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to build a, a train track that went across the whole battlefield. You can take it. But this is back in the 1890s, 1891, 92, around there. But he wanted to destroy a lot of the battlefield, specifically places like Devil's Den, to build his tracks. Um, now, fortunately for Sickles in the Battle of Gettysburg, 1893 was the 30th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, right around the time that Tipton is trying to do this. So, so 30 years, so really July 2nd, 1893, it's 30 years to the day when Sickles went to the Peach Orchard. He is at the dedication of the New York Monument at the cemetery, and he's given this big, fabulous speech about about how everything he did was wrong, everything he did was right. But what happened was he was really focused on those monuments. Um, and he kind of put in the public's mind that we have to put the government behind protecting this specific battlefield. Now, Tipton was like the enemy. He was the guy with the black hat, twisted the mustache, and that's that's who he was. <laughs> he, wanted to, he wanted to build all over it. So there's that funny story where the day of the 44th New York Monument dedication, the one up there right on Little Round Top. They were doing their little thing. The soldiers were up there talking, reminiscing about all the stuff they did, embellishing their stories you know, the way they tend to do. Tipton had set up a camera to photograph it, and someone recognized him and started to give him a hard time for it. And there was words back and forth. Allegedly, someone threw his camera off the, off the ledge, and Sickles got sued $10,000 by Tipton, and who knows if he ever paid it, but... Um, <laughs> 
But Tipton's intention was to destroy Devil's Den. And so Sickles finally petitioned Congress to acquire that land. And the government pushed back, and finally they finally got it done. President Grover Cleveland in 1896 finally, um, and it was, it was a decision that actually got pushed to the Supreme Court, and it was affirmed by them that they could protect this land. It was a big victory for all the Civil War battlefields at that time because now you had federal and Supreme Court backing to protect the battlefields. Um, and it wasn't even with that being said, it wasn't until 1913 that there was money raised. And this is after Sickles died to remove those bad, those track, those train tracks. If you go to Gettysburg today, you can still see the remains of the train tracks of, on some of the places. Um, and so that's that's kind of how it was. Now Sickles, you know, he has a reputation while he was in charge of that. The, the New York Monument restoration money was disappearing and never found it. I think it was like about thirty grand fell you know, fell off the truck. It wouldn't and, uh, be Uncle they Dan say. if it wouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, but 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 <laughs> because of his celebrity and who he was, they never really pursued it. But who the hell knows what happened to it? But um, you know, they never built a monument for him. And and so one of the quotes he had before he died was they asked him about it. And he goes, the whole damn battlefield's my, my monument. <laughs> and you know what, though? When you're sitting at a little round top, like I do, and I smoke my cigar in my little secret place where no one goes, and I look, and you look out at that vista and you see Devil's Den, the triangular field, you really can owe that to Dan Sickles. You really can, because that would have been commercial development. And it wasn't for his real effort. And that became his life goal as it really went on, was to preserve that specific battlefield. Um, and that kind of spurred other battlefields to kind of, to kind of do it as well. But specifically for him, um, that, was, that was certainly his legacy. I mean, he's got a, he has a colorful past militarily, there's no question. But you can't deny, anybody who attacks him for Gettysburg has to look at that other side, that you can attack him all you want, but the fact that you can sit there mm-hmm. and spend the weekend and do a battle tour is because of him. It really is. Kind of growing up in the Gulf South, um, you know, at least close by to me is uh, Port Hudson. Uh, and there's there's a lot of, you know, development over there. But, you know, honestly, they, they do a pretty good job uh, with battlefield preservation. But, you know, sort of going into this uh, in this episode, um, I was looking at a few things and it kind of reminded me of the Battle of Bryce's Crossroads. It's sort of in the, you know, northeast corner of Mississippi and you know, arguably it's, it's one of the, you know, best preserved, uh, civil war battlefields, you know, because, because of how much land they're able to preserve. Um, I want to say that a lot of this, um, battlefield is actually bought up by the Agnew family. Uh, and they eventually, you know, sell bits and pieces of it to the, uh, Bryce's Crossroads, uh, National Battlefield Commission, which was actually, uh, established back in 1929, and they do a really good job here, and it's actually with uh, the help of the Civil War Trust that they're able to preserve over, like, I, I want to say it, almost directly, it's like 1,423 acres, which is like 99.9% uh, of the entire battlefield, which, I mean, that's that's impressive enough, but, you know, I mean, that's one of these, you know, late in the Civil War battles, you know, we see Major General uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest going off against um, or going up against the you know Union forces of uh, Brigadier General Sam, uh, Samuel Sturgis and you know I mean this is a you know late war battle and, and it's it's still just incredibly you know important as as anyone. It's a cool battle yeah. too. 
it's one of my I think my dad and I did um, like that a trail all the way up uh, the Natchez Trace to where it hooked into 65 or Highway 31 and 65 and we did uh, we did Bryce's Crossroads we went down to Tupelo did Tupelo then turned around hit Oklahoma and then all the way up here to Tennessee and did uh, Mount Pleasant Henryville Columbia Spring Hill Franklin the whole nine and that's that's the gift of having these battlefields preserved or at least just having a sign there you know we'll talk about our our sponsor at the end civil war trails but um it's in large part to them that there's a lot of these places especially virginia and tennessee uh that have signage on these different battlefields that help you to visit these places i think that's you know to like civil war trails like um, we did an episode where um, with them where we did a fundraiser for them and or like just working with them on some stuff and you know they are happy to tell not just the well-known stories but the lesser known stories too that maybe don't get told as much which is really really interesting mm-hmm. um, and I think you know a lot of these battlefields the reason they're preserved you know the ones that are well preserved have come down to kind of a grassroots effort you know, you have even, I would consider mm-hmm. Dan Sickles to be that way. Like, he's one guy and he's like, we're preserving this. You know, who you mentioned, Bo, with, with Bryce's Crossroads. Um, you know, and it also goes back to Kennesaw with that Illinois regiment buying up Cheatham's Hill. You know, they, they bought up the spot where a lot of them had, you know, a lot of their fellow soldiers had died um, when they attacked that. Um, and clearly preservation was very, very important to them. Um, but then you think of the spots like Ezra Church chantilly these postage stamps that you can't get an idea of how the battle happened and you know all we can do is just continue to tell the story and hope that maybe someday you know like what's happened at franklin with the reclamation of certain areas and what continues to happen and just with how well preserved somewhere like antietam or gettysburg is that maybe someday that'll happen to that area too but it goes back to the whole like you're fighting with the commercialization and residential aspects of it right you know like at mary's heights like you know i've seen pictures of it and like behind it's a bunch of houses you can't get an idea really of what those soldiers went through kennesaw was very much kind of it started as this grassroots effort and you know kennesaw is this battle in the western theater that is absolutely horrific a lot of the like you know some of the generals that fought there had fought at gettysburg um yeah my second howard reference (laughs) he said that what he saw at kennesaw was worse than what he witnessed at Gettysburg. Um, and just, he specifically mentioned Little Round Talk too, so I don't know if that was throwing some shade at Chamberlain or whatever, but, but he said he'd never seen anything as bad as that to that point. Um, the fighting was absolutely horrific there, but it started off with this Illinois regiment buying some land in the late 1800s, which is now Cheatham's Hill, which I've never been there, but Darren has. And Darren, you said that Cheatham's Hill like you said, the breastworks there are the like the most well preserved that you've seen, right? Oh, they're they're real and they're spectacular, Mary. <laughs> the breastworks at Cheatham's Hill. Those are some those are some of the best ones that you'll see when you see some of these ones. Um, there are places like Spotsylvania that are really good too. But if you walk if you walk Cheatham Hill, anywhere big Kennesaw, little Kennesaw, that that entire battlefield, it, it the work they did to preserve them is just absolutely fantastic. So um, it's just the, most of these places are walking parks now. Um, Bristol Station is kind of like that. It's a it's a dog walking park for the most part. With the cannon is what it is now, but it is preserved though. Um, people still go there. They don't. They probably don't know why there's a cannon there. But realistically, most mm-hmm. people in that part of Virginia. Yeah. But the challenge. But the challenge in certain places. 
and Bo had hinted at earlier, is some of the land of these places is primo land. You're talking that Manassas, Virginia area, that's a Washington, D.C. suburb. You buy a house in Manassas, that's, I mean, that's big money, Mary. That's, you know, that's, 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 you, you certainly can't afford it, no question. You're working at the DQ down there. You're not going to get that. But, <laughs> but, that's, but, but, but that's how, it's, so, so it's tough for these places to justify. So, so some of these battlefield groups to raise money to preserve land. Yeah. That's what makes the fact that Manassas is so preserved a miracle. A miracle because that land, I would, I yeah. invite anyone to go on Google Earth and look at Manassas battlefield and you'll see the highway and right below the highway is the urban developments and then right north of the highway it stops where it's saved yeah. it is night and day and that would have, that's exactly how it would have been because that land is so expensive mm-hmm. and the economic factor as much as we love history and and everybody would love to see even the casual history fans will love to see a historical pretty venue a lot of these places the towns it comes out of dollars and cents and and you, you know you know, this, this, yeah. there's, a, there's another side to this that people don't always talk about, which is the economic side. And yeah, the economic side of it. So you have this group at Kennesaw, like 60 acres at Cheatham's Hills being preserved in the late 1800s. That's the only portion. And you have um, private ownership of where Kennesaw Mountain was fought from, you know, until 1933 when the um, National Park Service started to initiate land acquisition for, for this. And Kennesaw was actually established as a national battlefield on February 18th, 1917. August 10th, 1933, it transfers from the War Department and is redesignated as a national battlefield park um, on June the 26th, 1935. Um, takes till 1966 to get it registered um, as a historic place, but still there's a lot, like 30, 33 to 41, there's still a lot of private land ownership that they got to buy back, and who knows how the landscape had changed, but it was one interesting story I found just because that Illinois regiment regiment that wanted that Cheatham Hill, that 60 acres, and it was one guy I think touring there with his daughter. He took her there, and she was like, "Why don't you buy this?" Hmm. And he got together with his old, you know, so, like his, you know, soldier buddies, and that's what they decided to do. Um, Chickamauga is another interesting story. You know, it's the one that, you know, when you visit Chickamauga, it is what all the other battlefields were based off of. Um, and it's a fascinating place to visit. It's gigantic. You know, you can watch walk from the visitor center all the way up to Snodgrass yeah. Hill. You're walking Thomas's Union line, you know, that almost a mile long that on September 20th, 1863, um, before he had to head back to Chattanooga because the... the you know, the Confederates, yep, ran back to Chattanooga because the uh, Confederate. Yeah, exactly. My people need me. Duty uh, call. I had to go back to Chattanooga. Um, but it is, and it's one of these places where you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere almost, and it's so peaceful. Um, and it's got, like, yeah. there's so many cannons, and then you find out that they sent cannons to Gettysburg. So you're like, well, how many did you have here to begin with? You know? Um, yeah. I was kind yeah. of blown away by the amount of cannons at Shiloh yesterday. Just on Ruggles' line alone, I was you like... You were blown away by cannons, Joey? Wow. I was blown <laughs> away by that? cannons. Yeah, I know. That was the worst pun. Uh, <laughs> that might be... Darren, is that up there that with my awful. introductions? <laughs> no, 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 it's not that. Nothing's that bad. Your, your introduction is the late Ben is dancing bad, Mary. It's crazy. <laughs> I was astounded by the number of cannons mm-hmm. on on Ruggles, just Ruggles line alone, and they don't even have all 60. They've just got, you know, maybe 30 or 40 of them. But then you drive around the rest of the battlefield, and you're like, wait a second. 
there's a cannon like every hundred yards and you start counting i mean there's there's more than more than 300 cannons there yeah i think and that might be a it seems like everywhere i looked there was like a cannon and you know the one fascinating thing about chickamauga um you compare it to gettysburg is chickamauga uh, is very much a soldier's battlefield in that the soldiers were the ones that yeah made it there is not one uh, monument to a general on that battlefield and that's why you know i tell people to go there and say like mm-hmm. you'll have a great experience but it'll be a different experience than gettysburg because you know the soldiers made it what it was the only yeah. general's monument is in ringled gap and it's patrick claiborne and that was only put up a couple of years ago and huh? he, yeah and it's funny where he is because he's at the marker for where the Atlanta campaign began, which I'm sure Sherman would not be happy about <laughs> at all. So I think somebody had a sense of humor with the placement of that. Because if you know the history behind yeah. those two, um, it, it's pretty funny. But yeah, Chickamauga is definitely its history, how it was established, and just how different it is from Gettysburg. Um, you know, and just the level of preservation. And you drive like less than a mile away you're in civilization again. Yeah. How to be haunted by a union general. Put up a sign, put, put up the sign next yeah, to Kleber. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or put up the sign, but you know, you know, eh, no big deal. Um, actually back in, back in 2013, uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm still very disappointed that Joey didn't join us, but from what I could tell, I mean, it seemed as if, uh, Rosaka, the Rosaka battlefield was, you know, pretty well preserved. I don't know to what extent it actually is. Um, but from the parts that we were at, it seemed like it was a lot you know, of that in pretty good hands. Privately owned too. That's not all part of the battlefield. So, mm-hmm. uh, right. I think the battlefield is a small segment right. of a lot of sort of like farmland almost or pasture land. Yeah, yeah. Which is that's, which is that's what it seemed like anyway. Preserve um, preservation in a sense, you know. At least it's preserved. Like Darren, isn't Kernstown? privately owned well i was going to mention Kernstown. it's privately but the, the danger is is someone yeah. deciding I, I can't afford i gotta sell this and they're going to sell yeah. it to the walmart you know and that's going to be it now a Kernstown is was what a walmart would fit right in unfortunately it's right there in the middle of all the strip malls you it looks like you're pulling into a cul-de-sac and then there, there's a there's a gate and then sometimes it's open sometimes it's closed but there's a battlefield there balls yeah. bluff is the same way uh where it's set back a little bit but um but that is the challenge. That's why a lot of these groups like Battlefield Trust is trying to get ownership of this land for perpetuity so they can they can maintain it. Because private land is great if someone's trying to maintain it, but it's only as good as you have that current owner. And if they decide to flip that, then there's, there's nothing that you can do about it. I see that here in Boston, all the Revolutionary War sites, for the most part, Bunker Hill, Breed's Hill, they're all built over. Yeah. There's nothing. You can go see them, but... You, it's just it's walking through the neighborhood and there's little markers and that's that's the best you're gonna get um so there's definitely a risk with that especially in the bigger cities mm-hmm. so I, I would imagine some bostonian would be rather pissed off if you went and knocked on on his door and be like can i stand in your living room because i'm pretty sure well, this is every weird. bostonian you know. is nice we are sweet we are totally accommodating they're just, just like canadians the, just, just drive in the city mm-hmm. and i will show you <laughs> That that's absolutely you're completely completely wrong. Now, trust me, if you um, but that's the thing is like where Charlestown is, where Bunker Hill is, um, and it's all built over. And I actually had a friend of mine who lived there, and they did an excavation in his yard, and they found a red coat skeleton in his backyard, um, because they were gonna they wanted to dig. So, pretty cool. But 
Yeah, I would say he sat there on his deck drinking a yingling, watching them dig up on you know, as you do, dig up on bread cones. As you do, uh, if you know, but, but that's what he did. <laughs> but I mean, but that's what it's been reduced to. And you don't want to get to that point and have to try to recover the land or recoup the land. The goal is to keep the land as it is, you know, and just try to keep it in perpetuity. Well, let's talk about reclamation now, huh? I still need I still need to talk to the Pizza Hut CEO because. I don't know what it is about Pizza Hut and buying battlefield yeah. land, but see, Pizza Hut, the CEO must have been a big Civil War guy. It's probably like Shelby Foote's you know, <laughs> or something. And he yeah. bought. We made Foot. jokes about whoever was lined up at the Pizza Hut. He bought you know? all the primary land, right? The primo land, and he built Pizza Huts on there. And that's exactly what he did. Same thing with Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC. The K- the Kentucky Monument at Gettysburg is beautiful. It was right there, and you can go in there and you can buy chicken. It's perfect, you know. But that's um. That's that's the truth. But rec- but when you talk about reclamation, though, that's when you get into the real economic part of it. So when you have something that's been built over, and going back to Gettysburg again in 2014, the American Battlefield Trust acquired General Lee's headquarters, and they tore down the General Lee Motel as well as the Appalachian Beer Company, which broke my heart. By the way, they tore that down. But in a, what they did is they rebuilt it to look kind of way it did mm-hmm. when Lee was there. And that's really cool. What it is now, it's another stop on the battle tour, which is fantastic. But what that meant for the town was you lost 48 hotel rooms, right? You lost mm-hmm. restaurants, $12,000 annually to Adams County, 12000 to borrow to Gettysburg, and 34000 to the Gettysburg Area School District. That's $62,000 annually lost to the town coffers. Now, it's great if you're a historian, you're a tourist, but if you're a local living in these places, your taxes are going mm-hmm. up. The town of Gettysburg, 38% of the entire town is tax exempt. When you're talking churches, the schools, the nonprofits, and the battlefield. So they have to make up that difference. So that's the downside of this. Is, is, as much as reclamation is important, it has to be economically feasible for the people who live there. Otherwise, it's just going to it's going to dry out. And that, that's the American reality. Battlefield Trust has a great pamphlet out there, and we can put up the, of course, the links to the information for it. But it's, um, mm-hmm. I think it's called the pamp- the informational packet about the economic impact is uh, gray, blue, and green. And the green, of course, is the money and the dollars and cents of the whole thing. And they're very good about explaining, you know, if you want to acquire this piece of property, hey, you know what, that's great. But we have to look at the cost and not only the cost to the organization and the cost to the individual that wants to acquire that land, but it's also the cost to the town, like what it would cost that county, what it would cost that city in order to give up that section of land. And that's one of the things that uh, we've been able to do uh, uh, with American Battlefield Trust and, and with the Battle of Franklin Trust is that when the public engages in saying, you know, it's fine, this should be saved, this is a piece of land that needs to be saved, that's when it's almost as if the town is saying, we don't mind, we don't mind the tax hike uh, in order to do that. And that's, that's where we come in, is, is the public can be involved in those decisions picking up patches of really, really in, incredibly important ground. And that's what they did out east. Um, that's how Manassas really kind of started back in the 1950s, was they they picked, you know, I think they started at Henry House uh, Hill and then just sort of began to spread out. Um, and then I guess maybe now is a good time to talk about, talk about the Battle of Franklin and the Battle of Franklin Trust. 
is that mm-hmm. um, it's an organization we've they've only been around since 2009. Uh, so you're looking at about 11 years worth or 12 years. I've got that good math. Uh, <laughs> Oh, just like me. Math, I'm a historian, not a mathematician. Can you, can, I can't can you see her lips move in front of the math? You see that? Count like. Yeah, I was, I was doing it. I was I doing know, it I down here. I, was like, Wait, one, I ran out of fingers. Now, ah, twelve. <laughs> it's only twelve years old. Ah, we call 12. that the we call that the McClellan Math School. Mac Math. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> yes. Um, but the Battle Mac of Franklin math. Trust was was born in 2009, and it really started. Um, on what is today called the Eastern Flank Battlefield Park. And it started with Carnton, the home of John and Carrie McGavick. It would be used as a field hospital during the battle on November 30th, 1864. But the land right across the, sh- or literally across the courtyard, across the, uh, the driveway for the country club that was there had always been a part of the battle. And reclamation efforts at Carter House were completely different than what had started at, at Carnton. Because if you would have gone to Franklin from 1955 onwards, all you would have ever known about the Battle of Franklin is what happened at Carter House. Because that's what was saved. That was the one house with a little piece of land right adjacent to it that was saved. There was a house right next door to it and a house right next to that. And that whole area began to develop. And as Nashville grew, Franklin grew. And as more people came to Franklin, the neighborhood spawned out over it. But this area was set out as the Franklin Golf Course. And in 2009, a group called the Carton Association, Franklin's Charge, and what would eventually become the Battle of Franklin Trust managed to actually uh, persuade the descendants to purchase that land. And not only did they purchase it, but the city came in and they dedicated it as a battlefield. And so that was the first part of reclamation, was buying back the golf course. Today, when you walk through it, I've posted several pictures out on evening walks on the battlefield where you can you can see the ground. You can see where Loring's division, where the Confederate advance started. But then when you get over uh, back towards 431, back towards the highway, the Lewisburg Pike, you're right back into the neighborhoods. You're right back into development. And the first couple times I came to Franklin, I wanted to see where Stiles, Israel Stiles, Illinois and Indiana Brigade was and where the guns of the 4th U.S. Artillery were. And I was standing in front of an antique shop and a house. And I was trying to justify that in my head because you come across that big, beautiful field and all of a sudden you're in a parking lot. And then I think the first time I came to Franklin, the Domino's was still there. Uh, you know, So this area right around Carter House had developed. There's a strip mall, there's a Domino's, there's a Pizza Hut. And then American Battlefield Trust, the Battle of Franklin Trust, after the Battle of Franklin Trust acquires Carter House, all that starts to get ripped away. But what had happened for so long was that there were locals in Franklin, talking the old timers, that just accepted it. You know, they said, oh, it'd be great, but it could never happen. And to date, there's about 285 acres that have been saved um, and reclaimed. And a lot of it is the Carter Hill property. There was the high school gymnasium was on top of it. Um, on the other side, there were two houses, private residences. They were bought, and that ground is cleared, and now you can see where Patrick Claiborne and John Calvin Brown's divisions charged into the center of the federal line. On the other side of the street, you can actually see where Theodore Thomason's first Kentucky battery was, where the 100 and 104th Ohio is. And not only that, you can talk about some of these stories. You can 
go and see the guns of the 6th Ohio Battery, you can stand there and you can read Aaron Baldwin's report where he talks about having to fend off attackers with a pickaxe and sponge staves. You know, you can go and stand where the 104th Ohio, the Barking Dog Regiment, where Harvey the Dog was running around. Go across the street and you can stand right where Otho Strahl and John Brown's division was killed. You can go and stand in the 44th Missouri's line and you can see where this brand new regiment that had just been mustered into service, where they bent but refused to break. You can also see where Todd Carter was mortally wounded. And all of that is possible through the reclamation efforts. And it's taken a lot of money, you know. But it, it didn't just, it didn't happen overnight. It, it, it goes all the way back to 1864. It goes all the way back to the McGavicks taking care of that cemetery. It goes all the way back, really, to the first battlefield tour guide, Moscow Carter, the son of Fountain Branch Carter, the owner of the Carter house. Moscow lived there well into the 1890s, and he would welcome veterans back to the house and show them where they were on the battlefield. So on almost every tour of the Carter house, I tell people, like, I have a predecessor, and it's Moscow Carter. You know, I'm only X amount of years removed from him. And we get to do that every single day there because of the ground that we've saved. We get to tell their story, which is a story of, you know, it, it's human tragedy mixed with the triumph of the human spirit, mixed with endurance. And then there is loss and there's tragedy and there's destruction all around you. And then you stand in that field over by the golf course where yeah. it used to be the golf course and it's beautiful. And for a minute you almost kind of forget what happened in that spot. Mm -hmm. oh, the, the bank, the Battle of Franklin Trust, their, their motto there is to preserve, understand, and interpret mm -hmm. the story of the people impacted by the American yeah. Civil War. That's yep. exactly what it says right on their, their banner when you pull up their website. Yeah. And so, like many of these places, it's designed to tell that story and help and help raise money. And, and so, um, and their, their trust is, is, a, is a challenge. So it's a smaller one. It's not, it doesn't have the revenues of the, yeah. you know, it's under $2 million revenue, you know, annually for the most part, if you, if you look up the, the, the stuff. But it's, it's, a, it's a very highly thought of of trust. I mean, if you look up there, there are, there are services you could look up as far as charities, how they're rated. There's one called Charity Navigator. And the BOFT is one of the only ones that get a full 100 of 100 rating. Even ABT doesn't get that. So so it's true. So it's, so it's important when you, when you realize that it's got a great reputation and for all the work they're trying to do. And it's important to, to look at people like that when you're looking to put money in to save um Nothing against these other ones, but sometimes you want to look at more of these grassroots type ones yeah. where you can actually target what the money's going to I go. I think that's, you know, that's what it's about. And, and Franklin is one of those battles that, you know, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think it gets overlooked a lot. Um, and but it's one of those battles when you study, you realize yeah. the, the impact. You realize what happened there. You know, you have six commanders killed um, and and just that 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 loss and that you know Darren and I did an episode of that back November 2020 and of all the episodes we've done it was the one of the hardest ones yeah. I've had to edit just be and and also just you know the research it was just more something about it because you you realize at that point the civil war is almost over and you're questioning why like you know this is just it's absolute 
like it, it was horrible what happened there and who knows what went through those men's minds when they looked across that field and were like holy shit yeah. this is what we have to do I mean, they had like, no idea they had no idea that the war know, was going to end those... in six months they no. had no clue but i think i think there's a couple of different ways that you can look at it this is and this is something that we say on every tour is that they're the guys on the confederate side they're not the guys that are going home they are the bitter enders they are the ones that are going to go to their graves and i think that that has to do with why the fight is so ferocious but what franklin does is it sets you up for nashville what nashville does is it destroys the army uh, the confederate army of tennessee and that's it mm -hmm. i mean their their war is effectively over they will limp until april and what I think is, is so interesting is that you can look at Franklin, and I, I believe it's Jacob D. Cox who says, from Franklin I could see clear to the end of the war. When you say that, you understand why our name tags all say the Battle of Franklin Trust learned how the Civil War redefined America. Because you can teach that lesson at Franklin because you can point directly to the end of the war. You can point directly to the fact that this war will end in April and it will bring about an entire, as Lincoln would say in his second inaugural, a new birth of freedom. And it, it does redefine this country. It sets this nation on an entirely new course. But it all starts on, mm -hmm. you know, it, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the nation, all the way up to 1864. And everything is on that course. Yeah. And then there's this fatal day, November 30th, 1864. And it redefines the war in the Western theater, yeah. redefines the war as it stands. I think a large part of preservation, and if you don't mind if I get a little poetic, maybe wax lyrical, I don't know, is... No, go ahead. <laughs> we look back at, at, you know, just what Lincoln said at Gettysburg in November of 63. He said that we can't, we can't physically consecrate or dedicate these grounds. They've already been hollowed. It's not up to us. It's those men that have already done it. But in... In a lot of ways, I don't know that Lincoln was necessarily talking to the crowd that day so much as he was talking to our generation and later generations of Americans that would be able to visit those battlefields and understand what it meant when those men gave their last full measure of devotion. And it's there that we can say that we go to those places, we can dedicate those grounds now as sacred and hollowed and understand that those that have died didn't die in vain. And it all goes back to that. And it's that's why we preserve battlefields. His, his speech was definitely talking to us. His whole unfinished work. Mm -hmm. he's, he was talking He was talking 100 years down the road. He really, really was. A lot of different things. And so our, our meager task <laughs> as people who study this, this, this silly little thing <laughs> is to try to try to mm -hmm. find a way to get more people into it and more jazzed up by it to create that new generation of people that help carry that torch so that people... 50 years from yeah. now are able to see the same sites we do and maybe we you know reconnect at some of the places that are gone now and maybe you can come back and i think it's it's too it's about humanizing these individuals as well and and the individual stories from franklin you know that that happened there um not just them as soldiers but you know my favorite one is claiborne before the battle and the chessboard that he draws in the dirt the final hours of his life and what does he want to do? He wants to play chess. Probably because that took his mind off of what was about to happen. You know, we're looking at a guy that, and I think he knew he wasn't coming out of that battle alive. Like he's one of those ones that just he's, he's ready to give it his all. Um, 
and you know and two it's these stories that happen after like how his fiance she she does end up marrying you know a confederate general a few years later but then she dies less than a year after that you know it's it's those stories too and just humanizing them somebody said earlier that i get to live the dream and they're right i mean i do oh you do i I live i have the dream job i get to talk about these guys every day and i'm surrounded by their stories and you know sometimes sometimes you take a tour and you go on autopilot and then some days you take a tour and you're in it and it's it's in those times where you're in it where things start to click that maybe they they had never clicked before that day but you start to say man i wonder what he was thinking then you go and you find the soldier you know whoever it is you know i just found a 44 year old father who was wounded severely mortally wounded at the battle of spring hill he was drafted only about a month and a half before the battle he didn't have to be there but now i know that part of the story there's three brothers uh, or three family members the bogan family two sons and a father and the father is killed and they're in the 175th ohio and you know i talk about that regiment every day but i never think about the bogans until one day it just clicked oh my gosh they're right here well you know you say you know corps are comprised of you know divisions to brigades to regiments to companies but companies are made of fathers and sons and brothers you bring it down to that lower level and if you if you start at that point and you work your way yeah. up um it becomes so much easier to study because yeah. it resonates because that's that that's that's the important part of studying this stuff is the you know it, it, the, the husband the father mm-hmm. the brother that's more important than the company yeah. the regiment or the division because that's really how it all and, starts and really here at homebrew history we would like to give a huge tremendous uh tip of the hat a commendation to the civil war breakfast podcast for the breakfast club podcast for bringing that part of the story to it this is the humanity the human part of the war because it's so often just dots on a map just lines that are moving around and you guys have, I mean, yesterday I was sitting there, I was like, they talked about Henry Morgan Stanley. Well, let's go see where Henry Morgan Stanley was at Shiloh. <laughs> so we went over there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you guys have done such a wonderful job, and I know that you've got a listenership that loves what you do, and I love what you do, and just keep Thank on you. trucking. <laughs> Thank yes, you. definitely, definitely hoping you guys are, are, are the next Ken Burns series to light that fire of, you know, <laughs> revisiting the study of civil war i mean because i mean someone has to like you know joey kind of mentioned earlier you know with uh you know lincoln talking to future generations i i hope to be around when historians start looking into all these historical podcasts that have popped (laughs) up you know if there is a silver lining and there's not really any but if there is one if there is a silver lining behind you know all this you know the the covid uh, pandemic is I really honestly think that for the hi- historical community as a whole, all these different podcasts all over the world mm-hmm. has greatly benefited uh, our craft, yep. to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I, you know, Joey can, you know, probably attest to this, but, you know, who knows if, you know, we we may have never met, you know, the, the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast had it not been for this, yeah. uh, you know, you know, COVID outbreak and everything like that. But yeah, you guys do excellent work, and you know, we're we're big fans here at Homebrew. Thank you. Well, we we both enjoy what you two do as well. The the World War from World War Two Civil War, you know, all of it. Um, I'd say the the, the artil- ramblings of two madmen. Yeah, the the artillery, but you know, it's kind of that that down to earth 
kind of approach where you just talk about it in terms that you can bring it to the average person. Mm -hmm. That was actually one of our goals. Um, Yeah. Like there's the laughter and all that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, we've, we've brought people from all over the world, you know, just onto our podcast, but you know, probably one of the ones that sort of comes into mind is uh, Peter Caddick Adams and Peter's episodes that man he just he gets on they and talks are great <laughs> he does but he but he also <laughs> writes you know bullet stopper books right could stop an all six you know an all six round and and it's good to bring him on you know because typically outside of academia some someone may may they may, they may not read uh, all you know Caddick Adams pages books. of that book yeah. <laughs> right you know whereas we can bring him on for an hour hour and a half maybe sometimes two hours with Peter, um, you know, which, you know, Joey and I, Joey and I don't mind, you know, Joey and I would talk to a brick wall if it had good conversation, um, you know, but he's able to sort of break it down and sort of, like you said, layman's terms. And uh, we're bringing, you know, history, we're making it fun and bringing it to a wide, you know, au- you know, wide audience. Range. Well, let's get that audience involved. Let's talk about how they can help us here towards the very end of the show. Uh, you know, we're starting to wrap up and I think, that this is what we had come together, talked about this, is we want to do a little fundraiser. Mary, how about you tell us about what that fundraiser is going to be? (laughs) So we are doing a fundraiser for Battle Franklin Trust. Every $5 you donate, you will get entered into a raffle to win this gift basket, which Joe is going to tell you everything that is in the gift basket. So over to you, Joe. So we've... Show me the goodies. uh, Show me potato salad. We've got a uh, I Help Save the Battlefield t-shirt. Um, and it is got the Battle Franklin Trust logo on the front and a nice, beautiful picture of Carter House on the back. With that phrase on the back. We've also got two of our Battle of Franklin Trust um, coffee cup tumblers that will go with that, as well as a signed copy of Eric Jacobson's For Cause and For Country. And then both podcasts have thrown in some swag. From the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, you will get a beautiful logo coffee cup. From the Homebrew History podcast, you will get a uh, exclusive sticker pack containing all four of our logo stickers and our uh, world-famous now Bring Up the Piet sticker with Anthony Hopkins from A Bridge Too Far. Not quite Civil War related, but still the best movie and the best line ever set on screen. An awesome sticker. So Mary, back to you for more of the details. Each of our respective podcasts are going to tweet out the link to donate to Battle of Franklin Trust. And then on that page, you will find a donate button. Hit that. Donate however much you want. Like we said, every $5 gets you an entry into the raffle to be put towards this gift basket that uh, Joe has so awesomely put together for us here. Um, And then from there, uh, just, you know, you can put in the notes field, you can put Battlefield Reclamation. And then from there, once you get your receipt... Just screen cap that. Um, our listeners will be quite familiar with this part. You just screen cap your receipt and then send it to either info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com or Joe to your podcast. Uh, for our homebrew history listeners, you'll send it to homebrewhistory at gmail.com. And all of that will come together. And we'll have a great little podcast fundraiser here for Boft. And, yep. uh, you know, all that money goes directly towards historic preservation and battlefield reclamation. So. Uh, don't think that the money doesn't go to a great cause. Um, it doesn't pay me. It pays directly for <laughs> finding some acreage that needs to be saved. Uh, it's a great thing. Like I mentioned before, it's rated 100 of 100 by Charity Navigator. So it's a great cause. It's going to hopefully go towards a long way into helping 
reclaim some territory, maybe even someday the dream of a solid gold Emerson Opdyke statue, Mary, <laughs> right oh, on the battlefield. Those are fighting happen, words. Right? Oh. And we're never working with homebrew history again. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was just... well, maybe we'll make a gold medal to a gold statue someday. We'll, there we go. We'll, 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 we'll have that the Joseph Ricci memorial plaque on there. Oh. We dropped dead the day it was memorialized. <laughs> but regardless, we, 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 we joke about it, but the big picture is all this money is going to go towards a great cause. And we're blessed right now to be able to see some of these sites. But if you want your grandkids or whoever to see these sites, or you want to see more sites, these are the groups you have to get behind to put the money into. Because these places, you know, this land isn't going to be going to free itself up. Unfortunately, land gets more expensive mm-hmm. every single day. So without groups like BOFT, um, if you if you enjoy Franklin and you want to see Franklin more of it, this is what you have to do. And this is just a small effort and that step in the right direction. And hopefully it really takes off. Hopefully this is something that can really be a big moneymaker for, for, for them and something that can spur more people to donate going forward. So I think a lot of people aren't familiar with them. And, and that just goes to show that people aren't familiar with the battle. And the Battle of Franklin is if not the most underrated battle, it's certainly up there because people don't just don't study enough. When we, when we talked about that in our podcast, we mm-hmm. mentioned that. And people out here in my neck of the woods, they don't know Battle of Franklin. Oh, they, they just don't. So it, the job for all of us is to help people become more of a mainstream mm-hmm. battle. And so this is going to be a step in the right direction. So hopefully, you know, five bucks is great. But you know what? Kick in more. Don't be shy because um, it's something that's going to go a long way. Yeah. No doubt. And uh, we, first off, want to thank you guys for joining us tonight. And, you know, we're always happy to be by your side. So anytime we want to do this in the future, this has been super fun so far. Mm-hmm. And a reminder to all of our listeners that this episode of Homebrew History has been brought to you for the very first time by the Civil War Trails organization. Civil War Trails is the largest open-air museum offering 1,350 sites across six different states. Drive the Antietam campaign turn by turn, hike to remote artillery emplacements, or paddle to Frederick Douglass's birthplace. One of those remote artillery emplacements, well, it's in the Piggly Wiggly parking lot down in Columbia, Tennessee. You can see where John Schofield fended off John Bell Hood for just a day or two before retreating to Spring Hill. Visit CivilWarTrails.org to request a brochure today and follow Civil War Trails on all their social media platforms and create some history of your own. Wow, that was good. Wow. Very wow. Good. That was good. Can, yeah. can, you, can you do my they life? Sent me a, they... <laughs> you, uh, you know, you might want to tell you might want to tell Drew that Gettysburg Address was 271 words. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it down. <laughs> that was good. Um, and we just we just want to thank all of our listeners for um, you know tuning into this episode that we've you know partnered up with Homebrew History for, which we're very happy to like you know they're very much doing the same thing we are with this. We encourage all of our listeners to go out and start listening to their podcast. Um, Joe Joe and Bo are both great guys. Like they they know their stuff about history, and um, I think we're at episode fifty eight, right, Darren? Am I getting the math right on that? Sounds about right. You tell so. me, so I don't even I know. So. <laughs> I, I just do as I'm told. Right. Our listeners might be shocked at the lack of f bombs from me for this episode, but some for some reason, when other people join us, you know, work with other people for this, for some reason, the f bomb thing goes best off. Best behavior. Yeah, you, you are become your a best people behavior. person. You, be, you I don't have medicated you are tonight, Mary. You, you've been, you're, this, is, this, is, this is incredible. I, my goodness gracious, maybe hope for you. Yes, who knows? <laughs> maybe. 
But yeah, thank you to all of our listeners to, for tuning into this episode. And please, please donate, even if it's just $5, to Battle of Franklin Trust. Uh, it's a great cause. And let's reclaim some more battlefield for future generations to see. Well, cheers, everybody. And you can always find us on social media. For, the homebrew, for homebrew History, find us on Twitter, at Homebrew History. Uh, Facebook, Homebrew History Podcast. What about you guys on Civil War Breakfast Club? Yeah, on Twitter we are CW Breakfast Club, um, and then Instagram Civil War Breakfast Club, and then we have our Facebook page as well as our website CivilWarBreakfastClub.com. Um, and as always, we will be doing our usual Facebook Live on Saturday at ten, and I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit battlefield preservation reclamation, but who knows? Conversations usually depend on the mood I'm in, right, Darren? Yeah, it certainly <laughs> does. But a lot of a lot of fun stuff coming. This is obviously a great time for doing this. And- um, and, you know, kudos to you guys as well for doing this because, you know, none of us do this for anything more than the passion of the history of why we do it. We, you know, it's it's not like this yeah. is our, our full-time gig. I mean, but, you know, we're having to stretch imagination. So we do this on our own time uh, to really keep that fire lit. And so anybody who does this stuff, I, I have the tremendous respect for because I know I know there's a lot of there's a lot of things that pull our lives in different directions. And so on. Um, to be able to have a passion for this, it puts us in a very very unique club and i think that's um it's our responsibility to help teach and help keep that keep that motivation um and so that's what's great about this Mm -hmm. so you guys do a great job on that as do a lot of them ones but you guys you guys do very very well um and obviously the stuff you do for franklin joe is really really good that's very impressive thanks guys all right well bo take us out take us home you know more importantly you're listening to this podcast be sure to think a veteran but more importantly buy them a drink They'll definitely appreciate that. Raise our glasses and we'll say cheers, everybody. Cheers. Be sure to donate. Definitely. Definitely.